0: The Sex Agenda podcast may contain references to sexual violence, sexual assault or sexual oppression. Our listeners well-being is our priority. Please feel free to tune out if you need to. Hi, so welcome to episode 10 of the Sex Agenda podcast. This is menopause whilst black um, episode and i'm so excited to get in to conversation with our guest karen arthur i'm dr annabelle shomimo i'm a community sexual reproductive health registrar and founder of decolonizing contraception and co-director with the lovely Eden.
1: hi i'm edem as annabelle said co-director of BC lead on community engagement work, among other things. And yeah, I am really looking forward to this episode. Although I have not personally been to the menopause, I have someone very close to me who has and it was a it's a very difficult time for all of us and we did not speak very much about it. So it's just really refreshing to have Karen on who just, you know, talks about it. And, you know, it's just so open and it's just wonderful. Yeah. Let me let me stop gushing. I do this every time we have somebody <laughs> on. Just gushing, gushing,
0: Everyone gushing. that. Everyone we have on is though, is always just so amazing. Honestly, um,
1: people are just going to be like, you can invite people you like on the podcast.
0: <laughs> like- well, what else is a podcast for? Um, thank you to everybody that's been filling out our podcast survey and giving us feedback. Um, please continue to do so. The link to the survey um, is on our website um, and also on our social media and things like that. So please keep feeding back. So... Lots of things going on this week. One of the things that I'm so proud of um, is that we launched our co paper with um, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service, um, Lancaster University and Shine aloud Loud on long acting reversible contraception, taking a human rights approach. So essentially, that involved us running a workshop and researchers also um, interviewing and doing surveys um, with individuals about the use of long acting reversible contraception. And some of the findings were unsurprising. Um, so, you know, people feeling that they were pressured, feeling like they were coerced into using it. Also flagging issues such as time constraints um, when discussing contraception um, with providers. So, yeah, I think people should go and read it. The report is on our website. It's on the BPass website. But it's something that, you know, we've been planning to release for a while and analyzing and bringing the report together was real labor of love. But we feel like a report like this is really overdue.
1: Yes. Well done, Annabelle. Really, really proud of you. I'm just gonna <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: why you were delayed. You were loading up the sirens. Yes, I was.
1: That's what I was doing.
0: The horns, the horns, you're loading them
1: up. <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, so proud of you. The research definitely people should go out and read it, but it's just it's very in line with obviously what we've been hearing from people you know, you as a doctor in the work that you do and as part of VC, and also as part of my work for a while and particularly the round, around the stuff around, you know, people sort of being coerced and people sort of being, you know, overly encouraged to go certain contraceptions. And I, I see that fits in with a lot of commissions, right? Because like even in the former service I used to work in, we had commissions around you know, encouraging people to get on luck, right? But again, that has to come with that being people's choice. Like we can give people the information and then they get to decide whether or not they want to choose that particular contraception and they should not be forced, they should not be pushed into it. And I think that that's incredibly important um, work that you guys did there. So yeah, no, really proud of you. People should definitely go read the report.
0: So I think something that this report, because we've seen other studies and, um, you know, reports around similar issues before, but I think what this report um, highlighted was it looked at people from a variety of kind of different areas, it spoke to disabled women, um, it spoke spoke to people that... um, of had their children taken into care, um, or provide contraception for that cohort of people, um, as well as um, younger people that are at risk of kind of considered at risk of teen pregnancy. And I think what it highlighted is how we sometimes let society's values of who's considered like a good parent, good mother, govern how this area is funded, and how certain Populations are kind of policed. Whilst it's really important, and you know, as a contraception provider and you know, seeing people all throughout their reproductive cycle and life, it's important that people feel like they are making basically fully informed choices. We need to interrogate like our own views of people, that nuance in the conversation. This report really unpicks, and I think that's been something that's been difficult to evidence or really start a discussion on before. So, yeah, I really hope that people read it um and also colleagues learn from it as well so
1: yeah yeah Yes. and I hope it furthers the conversation the much needed conversation that needs to happen I, and I also hope that it brings you know sometimes people need their experience validated. you know because like a lot of time we hear these things anecdotally and people don't think that you know the field or the sector takes how they feel or the experiences they've had seriously. And I think this goes a very long way to doing that. So yeah, again, great work, friends. Um, so our next news topic is, is an article in the BBC. So, um, last week we just wrapped up cervical cancer screening awareness week last week. Um, it was led by the Joe's trust. I saw lots of great, um, videos and articles and things that lots of different NHS trusts and sexual health, reproductive health organizations were doing around it. But this particular, article is about the stigma around HPV, the human papillomavirus, which we know strains of that causes a cervical cancer as well as herpes as well, which you remember we talked about extensively in our first episode of the season with Courtney. Um, and this article is talking about a myriad of experiences, but it basically leads um, the Labour MP Jess Phillips who was talking about the shame and guilt they felt after they were told that they had HPV in their 20s and they're talking about how the stigma confuses people blaming how people can contract the, contract the virus essentially which you know can be contracted through um unprotected sex and that most sexually active people at some point will contract the virus and that can also show up in terms of like people's cervical screening so I remember when I had my first screening when I turned 25. I got a letter that just said, you know, I had HPV, like abnormal cells. And it was nothing to worry about, but they were just letting me know the results of my test. Yeah. And I, I really agree with this article. I think that the stigma around it just sends people into overdrive really when they get told and, and it prevents people from getting a smear test it prevents people from finding out more information and i think that you know cervical cancer screening awareness week is, is is definitely uh a really good thing that joe cervical cancer trust and all the organizations are doing to put that on the agenda and i know that covid has also impacted this right because lots of people's screening got cancelled or you know rescheduled a lot of people fell off the radar in terms of going for their screening so it's definitely important that the NHS catches up in terms of current screenings and also the backlog so I don't know I don't I hope I haven't covered everything.
0: <laughs> no like you, you that was so far. um <laughs> so basically I concur I have had an abnormal smear before as well and I wrote about it and um the experience was you know it was ultimately fine but I did find you know there were certain things around like going for colposcopy that I think could be better ultimately I think HPV Mm -hmm. is so poorly understood so some of the things that's brought up in the article are like some facts so around 80% of sexually active adults will contract one or more than 200 strains of HPV at some point in their lives so you know people are unaware that the numbers are you know that high and so about 90% of people self-clear the virus um and within two years so once you get it you can get it again you can get a different strain and it disappears and doesn't cause any abnormalities so it will be the same for a lot of people so my smear wasn't actually abnormal but I I had HPV on my smear sample and um, before if you had some minor changes the criteria has changed now so few people get called to colposcopy you would have to go to colposcopy Mm -hmm. which means camera test looking at your cervix but if you think about that statistic that you know 80% of people that are sexually active will get HPV at some point obviously a lot of people are going to get told they have HPV and it doesn't really mean very it doesn't mean very much so definitely I think making people more aware of some of these statistics and also I think there's a lot of misunderstanding because now we have the vaccine that people um generally get at 12 13 of school age um Mm -hmm. people think that that's like you can't get HPV, but there are different types um in different countries we've just Mm -hmm you know, vaccinated against the most common ones here. So I think there is still a lot of awareness raising. Um, I think things like the vaccine um, will reduce stigma because it's making people aware of the conversation at an earlier age. I couldn't agree more. There's a lot of just misinformation. So also this week, um, a lot of people have been quite angry online and (laughs) rightly so. so, um, As I mentioned, yeah, really. Really,
1: one, really funny that
0: way. <laughs> Our report that we co launched, we co launched that with BPAS, um, so British Pregnancy Advisory Service, and they issued a statement um, around this guidance from the World Health Organization, um, which essentially was part of their global alcohol action plan. And one of the points that they had put in there was that women of childbearing age um, should be encouraged never to drink due to the potential risks on damaging a fetus in the early weeks of pregnancy. So this article basically outlines this um, and has a quote from Claire Murphy, who's their chief executive, saying, it's extremely disturbing to see the World Health Organization risk hard one women's rights by attempting to control their bodies and choices in this way. And yeah, essentially, I couldn't agree more. Poorly worded advice doesn't really make any sense when several people don't want to be parents um, and women have no plans um, to have a child um, to be issuing said advice could have you know framed it very very differently I think there's lots to be said about risk is conveyed in pregnancy and kind of not really conveying the risk of certain outcomes to people considering pregnancy or who are pregnant well we often have like these bite-sized headlines from certain newspapers in particular that are very much like if you do this your baby will come out like that and obviously most research isn't that simple or straightforward so yeah I'm just I just don't really understand how we're still having such stupid stuff being put out (laughs) I was just a bit like (laughs) confused like did nobody did nobody read it and think like uh clearly this isn't good advice to be issuing it doesn't make any sense and knowing all the other things that we know that happen to uh women particular that alcohol related like assault and domestic violence the framing of this is just quite abhorrent
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's just not in line with what happens in real life right um and I guess like what I did find you know like what I did find great about this horrific thing was just the way the women online decided to respond. I just thought it was funny. You had people posting pictures of themselves with, like, five cocktails in front of them, which <laughs> I just thought was so funny. Yeah, was, was,
0: pretty, there, was some cool. pretty, there were some pretty hilarious photos, like, people just being, like, you know, having a pint, and, like, WHO, what do you think of this? It just, <laughs> just you know... <laughs> It's just such, it makes, the other thing is, is that This kind of guidelines, and I think for people that don't work in the sector, this isn't a reach. I think this is really relevant, right? That Mm. the World Health Organization is, you know, this global public health body that's issuing advice and we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And I actually do think that this hurts their their credibility and their legitimacy, even though there's so many different departments, right? When you issue guidelines like this that just are just stupid (coughs) and poorly phrased it Mm. makes people be like who we can't take you seriously yeah but who's rereading this like are you rereading your guidelines before you pull them out like who's scrutinizing that so I just found it really frustrating because I just think it was a silly thing to to be putting out um particularly in the wider you know global health context that we're currently living in so I don't think they'll yeah be putting out any guidelines that's worded like that in a hurry and um I'm not sure if they've retracted it yet but anyway um the response shows that it will be ignored I think yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I think they're kind of backtracking a little they're like oh we didn't blah 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 and it's like well actually the damage is already done and I really agree that it it was just really terrible like advice issue considering sexism being a thing and women you know women's reproductive health being everybody else's business but just women's business um yeah it's terrible but I again I really enjoyed the very very hilarious (laughs) responses that came out of this online so our next article is on menshealth.com um, and it's an article about men and miscarriage. So um, I really enjoyed reading this piece. I think it was something that I was aware of, as with, like, most things to do with sexual reproductive health, and when certain things happen, how, you know, sort men are excluded because of patriarchy, sexism, or them, you know, it being deemed that because they aren't physically going through a certain process, that, like, their mental health and stuff needs to be considered, and they need to be strong, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought this article did a very good job of highlighting the work of some really great organisations, but also talking about how, in terms of talking about certain things, namely, you know, Chrissy Teigen and Megan Marker opening up about their pregnancy loss last year. We are still not quite there in terms of, you know, we don't talk about the way that partners of the people experiencing the pregnancy loss It mainly focused on men um how are also dealing with this particular situation and how it can also impact them in in very similar ways. And the article talks about, you know, the kind of dynamic that we have, which is basically, you know, the quote unquote woman is going through the thing, the partner is expected to be like, you know, strong and supportive and not really like talk about how they're feeling or their emotions and the fact there are very little organisations that people can go to, particularly men. My partners, um, can go to, to talk about, you know, their also experiences of feeling lost, um, and, and of, of going through, you know, pain because of the situation. It's really good to see, you know, people stepping up and creating organizations. Um, there's a petition that people can sign calling for the government to increase miscarriage support basically. And I think that that's a good way to go, right? Like if we increase, you know, the amount of support services available and then we also, you know, and create spaces in which people can talk about this thing we can begin begin to address it. So I don't know what you think, Annabel.
0: I mean I completely um agree that I think with um reproductive um issues and health sometimes that people um are so focused on maintaining autonomy and rights and that is so vital that when people are addressing an issue as a couple sometimes the you know the male perspective or the person who has the penis that 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 perspective is lost in terms of the management or thinking that support is needed and i think that as you rightly said and the article outlines a lot of this has got to do with our concepts around masculinity and uh, masculine presenting people and how that means that they don't need softness and they don't need care. And that presents in really other, you know, much other ugly ways within our society as well Um, when it comes to um, often men's care. So, yeah, I think that there definitely needs to be a bit more kind of support around it um, and, and thought. And yeah, I just think, I think it goes back to the heart of so many of the things we discuss really around what it means, um, to be gendered and like put in a box and people say that you can only express or feel a certain way. And then that means that your, your needs are not being met. So I felt like that was, um, a really interesting article and it was, I think it was trending on Twitter and I was really happy to see that conversation being had because as somebody that manages, um, miscarriage, um, and sees people, um, go through that experience I don't think people um, acknowledge how traumatic it can be particularly in people that have infertility issues or have recurrent miscarriage and the toll that can take on relationships I also think there's something to be said about you know care for um, people in same-sex relationships as well or queer relationships and actually there not being an acknowledgement that it can be traumatic to to the the partner and they don't know how to to support you know their partner to go through that um just coincidentally um i really recently just completed the new series of masters of none on netflix and i I don't want (laughs) to i'm kind of throwing spoilers out there but yeah can't recommend that series enough because i think it it basically touches on some really important reproductive issues um and I think uh yeah I just think it's really great that season for for laying those out so yeah that is our kind of mess roundup for <laughs> this week <laughs> a little less messy I than usual <laughs> um, yeah exactly so um so excited um to get into our discussion with Karen Arthur um from Menopause Whilst Black podcast so yes Listening to The Sex Agenda. We've got Karen Arthur, she, her... Um, on the show today and she is a fashion creative who makes bespoke clothing for women as well as passing on her love of creativity to others by teaching them to sew. Karen speaks about the positive links between fashion and mental well-being through where you're happy and how this mindset personally helped move her through depression after leaving her teaching career six years ago. Karen, 59-year-old grandmother, is committed to helping diversify the menopause scene with her podcast, Menopause Whilst Black, which is now in its second series. Go listen. We're going to unpack more of that. Love it. Love what I've listened to so far. Um, having taken up modeling in her late 50s, you might have seen her smiling eyes gracing a recent Specsavers TV campaign. And yes, it was beautiful. So welcome, 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 Karen. Yeah. So, like, oh, so happy. happy.
2: Happy to have you. Good to be here. Good to be here. Lovely to see you. (laughs) Um yeah,
0: I mean, let's just start off, I guess, with a really broad question. Um, there's so much there. And recently I did see you in the 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 menopause documentary that I think Dimverina McCall hosted. Um and obviously that's put your work more in a lot of other people's radar, I'm sure, which is so great to see because I've been following it for some time. So Mm. what led you, I suppose, to entering this space and and starting to uplift the voices of black women um experiencing uh, menopause?
2: hmm well when I started to first of all thank you for having me um when I started talking about menopause I started talking about menopause because I was going through it I've been quite honest about my mental well-being journey and menopause has been part of that and so that would have been six seven years ago now when I was teaching but I also hadn't made, nobody had made the connection between my anxiety and depression diagnosis and menopause. So I was really just trying to get better, if I'm honest. Um, And I was trying specifically to get well so I could go back to the job that I've been doing for 28 years because it didn't occur to me that I could leave. So I left my teaching job and I thought I would get better because I assumed that that was the problem. And whilst it was part of the problem, it wasn't the whole problem. And so I had some unresolved issues from a previous relationship. I was burnt out. Let's just say it like it is. I was burnt out. And so my body lit me down. Um, And so I spent a long time reconnecting with myself, which sounds a little bit wanky but there you go right. um, we sense. support
1: that we support that <laughs> <here>. <laughs> in this, in this podcast, we are big advocates for that,
2: yeah right, <laughs> so I suppose I'd been running around trying to pay my mortgage um, look after my girls, make sure they were okay, looking after everybody else, I'm the oldest of four uh, as well um, doing all the stuff and I hadn't really given myself a chance to kind of take stock. And I I was increasingly more unhappy in my job and not realising it. And also not realising, well, I realised I was unhappy, but I didn't think I could do anything about it. thought I'd just teach until I didn't teach. And then I'd probably die. There are some statistics about teachers dying within the first year of their retirement or something, so... Anyway, not trying to depress you. Um, The space that not having a job, being fun employed, created meant that I could get really ill. (laughs) And so I went into therapy. That's basically what I did. I mean, I did lots of other things, but ostensibly I went into therapy and I started to get better. And then as I got better, I started to, I was Googling menopause. I was trying, I had tingly legs and I was having hot flushes. I didn't realize I was having hot flushes. I had a lot of brain fog, which is just, that can range from like forgetting words in the middle of sentences, which is incredibly common to forgetting how to drive or, which is one of my recent guests, said when she was driving she forgot how to drive which is terrifying to forgetting um to go to meetings to anxiety I mean it is is a big there's a big range and I started to realize I was going through menopause and so I'm the kind of person who I've developed into I will say the kind of person who is honest about almost everything to a fault which meant that I wanted to talk about it and there wasn't anybody to talk to and I couldn't Mm -hmm. see I didn't make the connection between what was on my computer with all the you know old white sad faces and me if I'm honest Mm -hmm. so I first of all gathered my friends my black girlfriends and we Mm -hmm. would meet only once a year it wasn't like a big I didn't it was a big deal. Like Now I think about it. But at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. I'm slightly older than them. And I just thought, listen, I'm going through this. I know some of you are going through it, too. Let's chat about it. And it was just that life affirming hug that you need from your friends. Yeah. Not necessarily because you're going through it in exactly the same way, but certainly that. All, oh, my God. You know, what are you doing? How are you, you know, coping? what's going on and that permission to talk about
0: it yeah
2: um but the podcast I don't know did you ask me that I'm gonna say so, you so <laughs> we're gonna to get to the podcast in just a
0: moment because I absolutely love it um and I really I really really um think everyone that loves this podcast would really love yours um too and she definitely listen to that Just said some really interesting things. So for context, before we started, um, for some of the listeners, I was just talking about how I've completed, just finished my menopause training. So I've been, you know, doing menopause clinics for quite a long time now, um pre-COVID, um, and I really, I really enjoy it. But I work in Leicester. And Leicester is one of the more diverse parts of the country, definitely large um, South Asian population, but also historically quite a large um, Caribbean population has the biggest um, carnival outside Notting Hill in the UK. Despite that, I have not seen a single black woman in my menopause clinic um, for the whole time I've been doing men. Actually, I think I saw I had a telephone consultation with one black woman. Um, and that was only the last few months. And I've been doing this for at least about 18 months now. So obviously, not all black women will end up in being referred to hospital, they might see their GPs. But I felt like that was quite telling. And people might not want medication. And we've talked about the reasons why black population don't necessarily engage with healthcare and things um, frequently on this podcast. Basically, I just wanted to talk a bit more about how stereotypes around black womanhood might feed into people not either recognising their menopausal symptoms more than some other groups. Um, And then also about, I guess, people wanting to access care, doesn't even have to be medical care, but even like more complementary therapies and things like that. Um, Yeah, I just feel like there's a lack of recognition particularly around black women and maybe some of the stereotypes might play into that I don't know what what you think
2: I think a lot if I'm honest (laughs) okay that was that's such a massive topic what you said there's so much there's so oh my god um first of all what you said saddens me that's the biggest thing actually it saddens me that black women don't feel that they can access gps the conversations I'm having around the research that I did last year, which is just basically dipping my toe in the water and asking black UK-based women about menopause in general, is that we don't like to go to doctors. We don't feel that we're listened to. Yeah. Um God, there's so much to unpick there. There's me- medical racism ties yeah. into this. You know, all the statistics around uh, black people being disproportionately um, affected by covid deaths yeah. to maternal rates you know yeah. the five times that maybe have gone down to four times whoop yeah. you know uh to die in black women to die in childbirth um to not just not being listened to being dismissed but there's all the other thing that ties into that is we just don't talk about stuff do we we're, we're yeah. just you know uh, what I'm finding is that, first of all, my mother never talked about menopause. She talked about the change. She didn't talk specifically about <laughs> it. She just whipped her top off when she got hot and said, is it hot in here? So that's that's all, you know. So I saw that as, I was just embarrassed, actually. Mm. And I, you know, I was listening, I'm listening to episode three so I can record my intro today. And she was talking, my guest was talking about the fact that we're we're taught to soldier on and so there's this kind of mentality around our elders which is well I went through it you can go through it too but there's a lot more and you know and then there's the 2002 report around uh, hormone replacement therapy and the links with breast cancer and that's been blown out of the water by you know certainly by the um, recent research and also by the program I was in with Davina McCall, sex myths and menopause, there's a lot. There's also the stuff around the workplace, you know, black women are saying, when I say, have you told the workplace? Because I feel that that work should be supporting, it should, two things. They should be supporting women full stop around menopause. And that is happening, starting to happen. Mm -hmm. But actually there's the intersectional part to that because I don't know whether you know, but, you know, black people have been through a bit, you know, certainly in the last generally, but certainly, you know, over black square summer and whatever you want to call it and George Floyd's murder and that kind of thing. So I feel that, you know, it feels to me like workplaces are more interested in um, supporting menopausal women. But when it comes to supporting black women and then black menopausal women, there's a whole nother level there. But women are saying that it's hard enough being a black woman in the workplace, whether it comes to being um, promoted or, um, you know, that kind of thing, without them also knowing how old I am, you know, because on the whole, it's a general thing, but on the whole, the average age for menopause, for us to go into menopause is 51. For black women, that can be up to two years earlier. And then if we also look like we're 35, you know, when we're 55, then there's the ageism thing coming in. It's so layered. It's, it's, there's a lot. And you've mentioned holistic practices. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I go back and forth. At the moment, I do not take hormone hormone replacement therapy, but I have not ruled it out. And I am having blood tests and doing my own research for myself, okay, Mm -hmm. because I advocate for women for menopause care to be fair for everybody. And at the moment, it isn't, it tends to be the women who either know about it or have the money to buy, you know, or not buy, but certainly see specialists and that kind of thing. And I just feel we need we as black women need to be look know, need to know this so we look after ourselves earlier and don't see self care as soldiering you know as being selfish but also we bun that soldiering on bullshit that black strong black woman absolute does not serve us. I have two daughters who are probably your age, twenty six and thirty. There is absolutely no way they are going to go through menopause in the same way I did, feeling alone, feeling that they weren't being heard, not understanding what was going on with them, not knowing anything. That's not happening. That is not happening. So I I feel that my mission, purpose, whatever you want to call it, Mm. is, is not only about being an older black woman who talks about menopause and showing up and living my best life kind of thing, but also getting, you know, your millennials and your generation, whatever the letter is, to take notice quicker Mm -hmm. so that when it does start, when things start to change in your, things can start to change in your mid-30s, you know, in your early 40s, that you can say, oh, perimenopause, which is basically menopausal foreplay, which can last up to 10 years, guys, you know. Um, it doesn't come as a shock and they've got all the information so they can make an educated decision about what they're going to do and how they're going to help themselves.
0: I just have to commend you. First of all, you look damn good. Can I just say that? Because I didn't say that at the beginning. Karen looks so good. Um, and I think... yeah yes girlfriend you're you're (laughs) eating them up eating it Um, (laughs) but that's not that shouldn't even be the point because some people you know you you age and with menopause um people don't always feel good you've talked about the severe depression and low mood that people feel and they don't always can't always make themselves the best but definitely with representation um not just for black women i have to say um, mm. your platform, I think is amazing. Because as I get to, you know, we, we spoke a bit at the beginning, yes, I'm young in some people's eyes, but then you think, actually, I'm kind of halfway through my reproductive, like years, or, you know, my menstrual years. So I am starting to think, you know, okay, what, what, what's it going to feel like when this isn't happening anymore? Mm. And I see people in clinic where it stops earlier, it stops, mm. you know, before 40, and they're surprised. And, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen to me. And it's like, I've been able to prepare myself. So I just think it's firstly amazing what you're doing, but I've had such a privilege and I call it a privilege working in menopause clinic and talking to people going through um, the change about you know what it means for their work lives, what it means for their relationship and their sex lives, because often sometimes people have come from a background or a generation where they really talk about sex and then they're confronted with a 30 year old person and they're like, oh, but you know, we, we managed to open up that that conversation and it's just really has been a privilege because otherwise I think I'd be so badly prepared. I had no idea, um, before I started doing this work, what it could potentially mean. This is the
2: thing. This is the thing. We are taught society, capitalism, patriarchy, whatever the hell you want to call it, both of them teach us that we have to work and work and work and work and work. And so often what women do is they put their uh, relationships or even put off having children if that's what they want to do or don't want to do until much later. If your menopause decides to come along a little earlier and you are not prepared for that, then there I'm speaking to women who are upset because they've hit their late 30s, hit menopause, can't have kids. This happens time and time again. Yes, yes, there is an average age but average means that there's lower than that as well and so the more we talk about it and i don't mean that you need to you know be on the internet every night or you need to be reading everything we just make it the thing that we talk about so that in 30 years time you know and people are going through menopause they they're actually thinking well, when, where, why why did you have to fight for this this is just this is just normal this is uh some people call it a hormone deficiency which it is. Uh, some people call it a natural part of transitioning, which it also is. The fact of the matter is we all go through it differently. My symptoms are different from my sisters, are different from my best friends, are diff- might be different from yours when you get there. I would also say what I'm loving about this converse- this conversation, but the broader menopause conversation, and particularly amongst the black community, is that it's opening up conversations with people who are privileged enough to have their mothers around, you know now, my mother is knocking on eighty two she her memory is is not good, okay, so the conversations I've managed to have with her over the last two years she changes the subject very quickly, so we never talked about it when she was going through it, and I weep i i i weep i I feel sad for the generations. Of women who went through alone, who aren't in the 21st century, who suffered because that's what you did, you know. What if I'd have known what my mum was going through, how in some way I could have helped her, you know? And I and I also I will say I'm looking back to when I used to work, when I was in my you know, twenties and thirties and forties, and women getting to a certain age, and you know, you couldn't find them, they were hiding in their office, and they were cut they were being badmouthed and cussed out because you could never get them to be. But now I realise they will have been having a terrible time. Yeah. You know? And so I feel like the whole world needs to bloody wake up, and our community needs to start talking. About the icky stuff about vaginas, <laughs> you know, and things that itch, <laughs> you know and and our cha- the fact that our cha- we our smell changes, we might need a stronger deodorant, you know um that our gum things happen with our gut there are so many things this is the thing. We don't know enough. There isn't enough research. The research that is, is scant. It's on white women anyway, because black people won't come forward. And sometimes we don't come forward because we don't trust the people who are doing the research. I could talk about this for hours. Unfortunately, I don't have hours. But all I want to do... And and what stopped me from opening my mouth and certainly starting the podcast was because I thought everybody would expect me to be an expert. And I honestly thought I was going to get tapped on the shoulder and someone say, oh, this person's been doing this for years. Who do you think you are? You know, and then I realized somebody said something to Natalie, my friend Natalie, who runs Baggage Reclaim. Natalie, she said something like nobody's born an expert. You have to start somewhere and Mm -hmm. done is better than perfect. So I bought a, you know, what are those things called? Microphone. Oh, words. I bought a microphone. (laughs) It sat in its box for, you know, a month. I researched all the different platforms I could use. And then one day I thought, I need to get on with this. It's my voice. And so all I'm doing and I say all, but it's actually huge. And I know it's huge because people tell me this. It's two black women talking about menopause. Who would have thought that would be so groundbreaking? Who would have is. thought?
1: But it is groundbreaking. You know? It is groundbreaking. And like everything you've just said, like all the jabs, like, you know, highlighting how there is this, so much information and data lacking is, is really why like a couple of years ago in my old job when I was doing reproductive health like I was really adamant that one of the workshops we did was around menopause because all we were doing was talking to people about preventing STIs and stopping pregnancy and I was like well reproductive health is much much bigger than that right and it even got me to thinking when Annabelle you were talking about complementary therapies it was something my organization offered but it only offered it to specific people then again that got me thinking about commissioning right how you know reproductive health service get commissioned and who gets to decide what individuals or certain groups need and how that needs to be much broader right like if anybody is coming and saying I need xyz we should be and also talking about people's sex life and changes I mean it always it always sometimes makes for a funny workshop because you had this 20 something year old talking to <laughs> 50 People <laughs> about menopause and some of the women used to be like yeah. but you know in the end we got there and I always you know part of the workshop was allowing space for people to talk about their experience and you know we'd go around and people would talk about this and that and it happened to them and, you know some of the symptoms like you were talking about that even when you go on the NHS website it doesn't lift but actually is a symptom that people can experience when they're going through the menopause so I think that the work you're doing Dare I say it is actually quite revolutionary to be honest. Like two black women talking about menopause. Before we, we started recording, I was talking about, you know, my mom going through the menopause, right? And, and it's a bit like you. Like, we both knew it was happening, but nobody really wanted to name it or talk about it. And it affected like I think about it as a lost yes. It affected our relationship so much because I didn't understand her. I didn't know how to help her. And she was just going through so much, and she was your typical like Ghanaian woman who's was just like I've got to soldier on I'm gonna go to my two jobs even though I feel like crap I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that and I'm not you know and I, and I don't have any time to look after myself because this is what I'm supposed to do I'm supposed to work I'm supposed to provide for my children what do you mean take time out and rest
2: like and it was how not tragic how tragic how tragic is that Quite you know sad. what I've said this before, the best gift I've ever done and given to myself and to my children is to advocate for myself. The best thing I ever did was teach my children just by being that strong black woman doesn't work. Strong for who? And how can you be strong for someone if you're not strong for yourself, if you don't advocate for yourself, if you don't look after yourself? What is it? You can't pull from an empty cup. It's as simple as that. But the other thing is this. I do encourage women, if your mother is around and you have a relationship with her, to have the conversation about when their period stopped. That's a big indicator. But I would also ask them, you, to tread carefully because... Remember, my mum isn't taught to talk about these things. She doesn't talk about periods. They never talked about these things. So actually, you've got to have quite a relationship to be able to – for them to want to. You just – we weren't – I didn't talk about sex with my mum. What? I learned about <laughs> sex, about periods from my mates. And some of it wasn't pre, wasn't too accurate. I, I was – it was just mm. – you just – I can't ima- – whereas now – well, one, my mum doesn't have a choice, but two, she's got no, she's 80. She's got no filter. So actually, they're hilarious conversations. But she's talking about things that, you know, we're asking older women to unlearn this kind of mindset, which is we don't talk about these things. We don't say the word vagina. We call it a precious or a something else. You know, we, don't, we don't We don't talk. So many euphemisms for bodily functions don't yeah. we generally
3: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so Karen aside from the podcast you did mention and your background in kind of fashion so could you elaborate on some of your other interests and also how some of those may have helped in terms of dealing with like menopausal symptoms and going um, through kind of the reproductive life course whether those changed at all what that meant for you
2: I think um, I've always been interested in fashion. My mother taught me. My mother is from Barbados. My parents are from Barbados. And my mother taught me to sew when I was 15. I've always tell the story that it was because I developed hay fever at 15 and I had nothing to do for six weeks in the holidays when some holidays were really long. But I now also, with hindsight, realise that my father had just left the family home and gone to live in another country with his, and got, with his new wife. And so it was also a way for us to be together and bond without saying anything, that non-verbal love and communication so I really got into sewing it and always sewed. Always loved fashion. Liked to look different from everybody else. Hated following the crowd. Boy, would customize. Alice
1: <laughs> needs to go to your Instagram because boy do you look different and fantastic. Yay. Yay. But we swear on this podcast, fucking fantastic you look. Anyway, carry on. I do apologize yes. for interrupting you. So <laughs>
2: I so throughout my and I my degree was in performing arts. So I loved to dance. When I discovered I could do a degree in dance, I was off. So I did dance, music and drama, and arts admin, which I barely went to, uh, in Leicester as it goes. So I, I danced, I taught dance. I went into teaching and I taught dance and I kind of fell into teaching. It was just like, I can do this, yeah, whatever, 28 years later. So I always, I moved across into pastoral leading and I dressed for work. So it was heels and head wraps and shoulder pads and suits and slightly smaller earrings and things like that. But I also recognised now that I was I was dressing to mask how I felt. I was falling out of love with my job. I had had a very difficult uh, split from my girl's father uh, a few years earlier. And so my focus was I just need to make as much money as I can, pay the mortgage, don't lose the house, all that kind of stuff. I didn't concentrate on me at all. And I was moving at a breakneck speed. So I worked, I hit the ground running at work. I got up, checked my emails, did all the stuff, went to work, did all the stuff, stayed late, did all the stuff, and then came home and did more stuff to do with work, went to bed, got up, did it all over again. And it didn't work for me really. Um, So when I left... When I had to leave, I will say it wasn't a choice in a sense. Um, everything went very quiet, like literally quiet. So I deepened my yoga practice. I've always been someone who stretched in the morning, but I, you know, tripled that. I developed a morning routine which involved lemon tea and. I learned to meditate mindfully. Um, I always thought people who meditated were a bit bonkers, if I'm honest, so now everybody's doing it. Um, <laughs> you sound like my therapist. He gave oh, me so yes, much and I haven't done it. Oh, yeah. my God. I thought there well, my brother's a Buddhist, and he bangs a, a thing, a little gong, and lights incense and all the stuff. So I thought, oh, no, I can't do that. But Mindful Meditation, John Kabat-Zinn has written a fantastic book, which is massive and expensive, and I've only read half of it, but bear with me. And it is about being present. And I now realize that my yoga practice was my meditation. My sewing, my creativity is my meditation. Meditation is prayer. I just didn't put all of those, join all those dots, so they helped me. But the other thing that changed as I moved through and out of depression was my relationship with fashion. I don't dress anything like I used to dress <laughs> six, seven years ago. I, When I was depressed, I wore a lot of hoodies and dark, uh, big clothes, if I left the house. And when I came through, my aunt had passed away in the same year. I was missing the relationship that I had imagined we would have had she been alive, I would make up for all the times I'd screened her calls and not been to visit her when my mum had told me to. I had a couple of her skirts and a bangle and some of her earrings, and I started to wear those clothing, that clothing, to make me feel closer to her. And gradually I extended that to the rest of my wardrobe. And I started to talk about it on Twitter at the time, hashtag where you're happy about making conscious choices about what I wear, choosing things that deliberately lift my mood. Today I'm wearing a summer dress because, have you seen the weather? Uh, And I'm evoking all those wonderful holidays I took this dress on, you know? And so these are the things that kind of helped me move through menopause, through depression, just getting older. But I also, menopause gifted me a don't give a fuck gene. It activated it. It was like, don't get me wrong, and I I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I do care what people think about me. I'm I'm human. I'm not thick-skinned. I'm actually quite a sensitive human. But I don't care in the sense that what I wear is what I wear. If I look like an explosion in a paint factory or if I look like I'm, you know, in fancy dress, I love it. And I realize that fashion is personal. Fashion is subjective. It is nobody's business what I wear. Women are, oh God, women, this is my topic. Women, from the minute we leave the womb, girls have to wear a certain color to the point where, say you put a baby grow, a girl in a baby grow that's navy, someone's going to comment, you know? And then we get older and then we start puberty and then we start to develop and then, There's the I remember distinctly both my girls when they hit 14 and developed breasts and the when they came home and told me about an incident where a man had followed them, stopped a car, made a comment. And that feeling you get, it's like, here we go. Here we go. And so. Coming to menopause and not caring what people think about what I wear. And I advocate all women to start that much earlier. I do not want women to wait till they get to their 50s to find their voice, wear what they like or advocate for themselves or whatever that happens to be. I I feel like fashion where you're happy, fashion psychology, whatever you call it, has also helped me, you know. I think growing old is great, older. I think ageing is a wonderful thing. I am aware of my privilege in that I have friends who didn't make it to 59 and so I feel like I want women to celebrate that and I particularly want black women to start to look after ourselves so much earlier because if the statistics are to believe if the research around black women developing menopause up to 2 years earlier than our white counterparts and suffering more severely from symptoms like hot flashes we need to st- because stress is something that can bring on menopause racial weathering which is Absolutely. the knowledge of racism in the world never mind the microaggressions and never mind it happened to you the whole of bloody 2020 these can bring on menopause earlier. So we need to learn our boundaries, you know, say no. Um, don't say yes when we mean no. Um, and that often that's with our families. Sometimes that's with our families because our families like to keep us in the box that we've always been. <laughs> yes. I understand. Right, all that. I know.
1: Right? <laughs>
2: right. You know, all of that stuff has an effect on our physiology, it's not just our mental well-being, it's our physical well-being. We age quicker.
0: A hundred percent. All the stuff that um, you know, we a hundred percent um agree with. And yeah, just as an aside, I think um I've not actually put this on the podcast before, um, but hoping to start my PhD actually, coincidentally at DMU. On on black women and probably like reproduction and contraception use, but hopefully touching upon like the whole life cycle. So I couldn't agree more. All of these things are things that I see in my clinical practice all the time, and um, especially draining because I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I think yeah. it's
2: important for you also to recognise that you're taking on all these stories, you're taking on all this trauma, and so it's really important that you working in menopause you know working with women uh seeing this on a daily basis that you are mindful that you're looking after yourself we take on a lot you know we take yeah. on many burdens for all sorts of reasons it'll be work it'll be family partners etc cetera, etc cetera. and whilst we are you know sometimes we are almost women are raised up for uh being being the carers, black women in particular, we're you know busy saving the world, leading the the charge on so many things, we have to not just wait till we're ill, we have to factor in um schedule in time when we switch off, whether thats switch off from social media, and don't get me wrong, I'm the worst at this. It's actually my daughters who pull me up and say, mum." you know, step away because they, and my <laughs> sister, because they see me, they see the signs that I'm going off the rails kind of thing. <laughs> so I feel like we, we, my, honestly, my daughter made me, and I made me book myself an Airbnb in Margate in two weeks time. Because and it's only two nights, nice. wow. she said,
1: that sounds, we, we
2: were having a conversation. I managed to get myself into a state and I'd become overwhelmed and she saw it. She saw it and I burst into tears and she said, right, that's it. <laughs> you know, uh, let's get on Airbnb now. Let's find somewhere. And the minute I'd booked it, I felt better because I now have something mm-hmm. to look forward to. My point is, let's be intentional about our self-care. And let's look at the, the the variety that the umbrella that self-care comes under. It's not just your nice bath and your incense and your nail painting. It's not just getting your hair done. It's it is boundaries, it is stepping away, it is social media detox, it is changing your environment. Yeah. It's yeah. so much. And sometimes because we're so busy, we actually need silence to do that, which is why I advocate for Getting silent and and being creative. Actually, I think creativity is a wonderful way to look after yourself. And for people who say I'm not creative,
0: I say bollocks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I run a I run a monthly craft circle where I invite everybody, but it's very women centric. To bring a project, just bring a project, and we sit for 2 hours online it used to be at my kitchen table clearly that's not happening anymore so it's online <laughs> and we create we somebody cooked somebody was sewing some and we talk and we chat and and it's it's beautiful oh, it's beautiful good, yeah. you know and I, I think if you can find a space you know that that you can talk to people or share with people because sometimes you don't have to talk sometimes you just have to be
0: So I think that's something we definitely miss from DC because we've not really been able to see each other in person. And before um, everything kicked off, we're actually planning a sexual health festival and we got to see each other. Mm. So definitely miss that. In terms of, you know, we do a lot of organising and um, kind of, I guess, lobbying and talking to people in the um, SRH, Sexual Reproductive Health Sector. What are your thoughts on what needs to change in the sector? It can be particularly around menopause to um, improve, I guess, care specifically for black women. Are there things that you think providers could do? Um, Are there areas of research? Obviously, you mentioned the survey that you did. Were there findings from that you think people need to kind of act upon?
2: I feel like um, I hear a lot about women uh, in the medical profession saying, but we're here. Why don't black women come to us? And I would say that that's, there are all sorts of reasons for that. But I feel that there needs to be a more conscious effort to do outreach, to reach out to those women where they are. And like similar to um, the vaccine, let's talk about the COVID vaccine where the black community were just not engaging at all for all sorts of reasons, which we can understand. The media was saying that they were trying to give, blame it on us. But actually, we have a justifiable, healthy distrust of medical profession and then so then they started much later on to target the the black community and go to whether it's some communities or that kind of thing so I think for menopause care in order for there to be access for everybody then I think that would be a start not assuming that just because you build it they will come it doesn't work that way it just doesn't there are spaces that for example people can't get time off to go to these clinics you know because the hours are so short. Or it might be that when they go to the clinic, they don't see anybody who looks like them. They don't see posters up with people who look like them. They don't see any literature. So why are they going to come to you? I don't go where I'm not wanted. I don't do that in restaurants. I don't do it here. You know, so I I feel like um, knowing that there is a gap and then coming to us. And gradually, things will change and people will come. That's That's where I think. I think that... We're in the infancy of there being access for all, and whilst there's lobbying in Parliament, there was a there was talk about menopause. I think last week, and there's going to be an, uh, they're going to talk about menopause in Parliament on the 29th of October, and there's lots of you know excitement about that being an important date. And solidarity is a word that's being used a lot, but I'd still feel <laughs> like feminism intersectionality may also be at play and we must be mindful of that i don't know whether that makes sense
0: no it makes perfect sense and i'm um, a huge advocate of um you know thinking outside the box innovation and kind of outreach and i'm very conscious of the fact that even the way we frame menopause currently is very much about we have to get on top of it for um predominantly middle class predominantly white people in the work but women in the workplace and their productivity rather than framing it as a everyone um, quality of life conversation and it always comes back to you know that productivity in the workplace issue
2: (laughs) I would also say there needs to be more education around what that care entails traditionally a lot of the Uh, black women want to go the holistic route but often it's because they don't know enough about hormone replacement therapy and it has a lot of bad press Uh, i am doing more research on hormone replacement therapy and certainly from a personal point of view you know hormone replacement therapy has come a long way and i don't I, i just don't want a situation where we're missing out if if taking hrt is is possibly going to be more preventative in the long run then you know, maybe this is something, not maybe, I think it's something that for some women um, it's worth getting on board. But, and I don't want it to be seen as a them and us situation. Like it has, mm. we have to, it has to be personal. It has to be down to you. It's not just about the yeah. symptoms. It's not just about soldiering or It's not just about, oh, well, I only have a few hot flushes, so I don't need to take this. It's bigger than that. We used to die at 60 years ago we't we, we want I want to live to my nineties and my my hundreds um bar being run over by a bus, and for that, I need all my energy and I need all my faculties and if taking what is considered to be a drug that has been researched and has come on a long way um if that's going to help me to stay alive and and live my best life and continue the work that I'm doing, then so be it. So be it. I don't want it to be a them and us situation. Absolutely. I just feel like it should be for everybody. And we shouldn't, and I don't,
0: yeah. yeah. Create a two-team it's, service yeah. where some people yeah. are accessing, it. some people mm-hmm. not. And do you know what? I That's could talk it. about... This yeah. specific, uh, I know. No, it's a- <laughs> no, no, no. But what you you brought up this whole other issue that I'm so passionate about because obviously I do prescribe HRT, hormone replacement therapy, for people, and there's a huge issue with Black women and cardiovascular risk and things like that. And we know HRT helps, and I feel like there's this whole area of research that is lacking. Mm. um You mm. know, could we be improving? the you know the heart outcomes for black women through through some of this so there's lots of untapped questions I know you need to dash I just want to conclude and ask you really what else you're working on are there certain things that people can go read obviously we've mentioned your podcast um, anything to be looking out for
2: okay so I have two surveys open I'd really love black women, black UK-based women, to look at them. Both of them are in the bio of my Instagram page, Menopause Whilst Black. One in particular I'm interested in because I'm interested across the board, not just people who are going through perimenopause and menopause, but younger women around their attitudes towards hormone replacement therapy and how they plan to or how they are uh, working through their menopause. But at the moment, I've finished recording series two. So I'm they're coming out. Those are coming out every two weeks. I will start recording uh, series three, maybe I'm giving myself a break. So maybe in the next couple of months. And I just want I just want women to talk. I want black women to talk, not be afraid to talk about what we're talking about now and encourage us to talk to our elders and listen to our elders but most of all I want black women to really look after ourselves because it's tough out there
0: that's an amazing note to um, end on. And yeah, so, much. so inspired by your work and really hope that um, our paths cross again in the future. And yeah, if you need yeah. anything.
2: Oh, no I'm doubt gonna... I will be interviewing you.
0: No <laughs> doubt <laughs> um, that's coming. Anytime. I'm, you know. Yeah, anytime. And if you need anything, we'll definitely um, yeah, circulate those surveys as much as we can on our platforms 100%.
2: I I feel this is so, thank you. I feel that this, your platform is so important. It's, there's so much going on now that I never had access to in my 20s, 30s, you know, even 40s. And I'm excited by, you know, your generation in terms of, what you are doing because i think that it stops here i think that the the taboo around menopause certainly about s- sexual health amongst the black community it stops because you guys are just what is it blazing that trail blazing <laughs> Trying. Thank you, so <laughs> kind.
0: After that amazing conversation, I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. We're into our growth section. This relates to so much that's been going on today and also the conversation um, that we had earlier. um, Kind of about black women's role and also the NHS generally and um, who it regards and um, who it still needs to learn to have compassion for. So this quote is taken from Heart of the Race, Black Women's Lives in Britain. Which was written by Brian, Dadsey, and Scafe, a few decades ago now, but is still very, very much um, relevant. And, you know, I continue to read and go back to to, to learn about the journey and where, where we are today. So it says When Black women began arriving in Britain after the Second World War to provide the newly established National Health Service with much needed labor, we came into a service which regarded us not as potential clients, but as workers. Our role was to become the nurses, cleaners and cooks who would supply and maintain the service for others. For me, this quote just embodies so much of the discussions that I have. And it does matter. It really does matter when you think about like what um, a system was built for and who it was built for um, and how it transitions today and who it works for. So I think this quote summarises so many of the barriers that some of our mothers or grandmothers experienced when they initially were seeking medical care in Britain um, as black British women and also um, reminds us that though we've come far, we still have like a really long way to go, um, statistics surrounding black women's reproductive health. And black communities, health and reproductive health generally, um, keep on demonstrating that the social inequalities, but as well as like the problems actually intrinsic to the health system, really um, struggle to get our needs met. So, yeah, I just thought I'd share that because also just as a reminder that a lot of things that we're discussing aren't new, really. They're age old conversations that Mm. we've just been trying to get people to hear and do something about
3: yes great quote brilliant book and like you said earlier this book is still sadly relevant today and it's relevant to the context that DC finds itself in to the context that we are working in um and yeah it's just another example of how our communities come and build something that is so crucial you think about the national health service it's like an organization that looks up after people's health and well-being right like we get asked to come here we're very instrumental key and crucial into building this service but this is the same service that in our times of need or even not in our times of need doesn't work effectively for us isn't easily accessible for us doesn't show us the care and kindness that we've shown it or you know, our. You know, our elders have shown it in terms of building it and getting it to the point that it is that we still continue to show it, right? Because loads of black people still work in the NHS. And it's just very reflective of, you know, the current political situation, right?
0: And I just want to emphasize that. Um, this quote for me also holds like a lot of relevance because, you know, like a lot of people, my family issue is like complex and it's a complex migrant journey. But my grandma um, you know, came and started off here as an auxiliary nurse. And she often talks to me about, you know, the real hardship and trauma she faced, you know, and racism she faced when she tried to, you know, like do her nursing training and progress for herself. I think it's really important that people understand that, you know, we black British people didn't just come into the <laughs> into the system one day we actually you know helped build it Built and sometimes it. went through a lot of trauma whilst mm. building it it's really hard um when you're exposed to comments that insinuate that you are propping up a healthcare system when actually you created that healthcare system because that's the legacy of the nhs calls were put out Mm -hmm. to the commonwealth um when it was being um created and people came across the commonwealth to help build the nhs
3: yeah oh baby i wish i could give you a hug got emotional there. i could feel it yeah and and it's like you've said before you know (laughs) you remember the episode when we were talking about the situation in India and you quite rightly pointed that, you know, some of some of how dire the situation became was because a lot of the people that could help and be, you know, pr- providing care are actually in this country, right? Like they're actually in the UK, providing people here with with care, right? A, a really, really dark time. So I think we should take this as a bit of reminder why we do the things we do, because we've always been there from the beginning, and we will continue to advocate for it to be better for us so that we can access the care that we need. Right. So on that very somber night, thank you very much for
0: sticking with us all the way to episode 10. And a reminder about the podcast survey and also please, please check out um Karen's podcast. There'll be links to um her surveys that she's currently running as well. And also I feel like this whole episode was so much about, you know, just reminding people that, Black women deserve compassion and care in the healthcare system. And you also have to be compassionate to yourself um, in a world that doesn't always show us compassion.
3: 100% agree. On that note, I love you. I'll speak to you soon.
0: I love you. Bye.